Amen and praise the Lord. Who said that? Praise the Lord. I agree with that. Amen. Absolutely. We got an awesome God. All right. Take your Bibles, please, and turn to James chapter 3. You know, uh, if you've been at Blessed Hope any time long, you know that we're not a stranger to dealing with the subject of racism. Even though we live in a state where we don't, a lot of us don't personally see in California a lot of racist attitudes, uh, we it's unmistakable that it still exists in the nation. Those who say, oh, yeah, yeah, America, there's not a lot of racism in America. Well, they don't realize that there's a lot of hearts. <laughs> there's a lot of people that don't know Jesus, you know, and a lot of people pretending to know Jesus that are still filled with hatred that need to repent and get right with God. And with the, um, the, the George Floyd deal, that was like so obviously reprehensible. I don't think anybody with a pulse and eyes, uh, anybody with a heart could not be sickened by that. And, and that's not the first time, you know. And, and then so a lot of people are saying, well, hey, there's a lot of, you know, white people that have been killed and, you know, and so forth with, you know, without having a gun and what have you. And as though it's all even and there's no real racism in the country. But systemically, I've seen the stats. In fact, I did four shows. We did four shows, uh, podcast shows, Tony Chad and I, where... Uh, That'll air this week when you listen to our podcast, uh, all on racism. And uh, I go through the statistics on one of those shows where the disparity with regard to the dis disproportion amount of black folks that are arrested and how much time they serve compared to non-blacks and how uh, many more percentage-wise go to the death, you know, to, to experience execution. Those numbers are real. So we can't act like there doesn't need to be change still. And yeah, the country's come a long way in a lot of ways, but we have a long way to go still. And, uh, and I'm all for peaceful protests. That's cool uh, to make people aware of what's going on. Obviously, those who are using it as an agenda to create violence and to steal and to hurt other people. When you have a bunch of white guys saying black lives matter and they're destroying a black man's business, there's something wrong with that. You know, uh, killing a, uh, other people, killing a, a black guy called Captain because he was a captain for 25, 30 years or so. He was protecting his friend's shop, gets killed. I know a black lady is saying, they're yelling Black Lives Matter and they're destroying my shop and so forth. That's messed up, man. That's, so when you're hating on people in the name of justice, you've got the same problem that cop has, you know? You need to get right with God, you know? So uh, as Christians, we need to deal, we of all people should deal with racism because we have the answer in Christ, Amen. We have the answer in the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, the first song that we sang today that Tony and Robbie led us in was literally, you know, uh, uh, the, the first song was, this is how we know what love is. This is how we know what love is. And that's taken from 1 John, which says, this is how we know what love is, that God gave his only son for us. And then the, the, the song actually says, we take one look at the cross, you know, and we know that when you look at the cross, you see God in the flesh dying for not just one race or group of people, but for who? Everyone. You know how many languages were on the cross? King of the Jews? A few different languages, right? Hebrew, Aramaic, and uh, Latin, and Greek. And that's because, and that's God's way of saying, hey, through his providence, he's dying for all. And we have the most, you know who hates racism more than anybody? God himself. Jesus, one of my favorite parables by Jesus is the Good Samaritan, which is about race, which I brought up last week. Uh, go to James chapter two, and I'll, I'll be bringing that up again today because Jesus spoke specifically about racism and how those who would follow his word and love their neighbors and themselves were not to be guilty of it. In fact, it's interesting, uh, you know, in that song it references John three sixteen for God so loved the what? God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that the white folks, does it say? Or the brown folks or the black folks? It says that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Amen? That's really, 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 really clear, you guys. It's unmistakable what he's saying there. And last week we went through James chapter 2, verses 1 through 10 or 11 there, or verse, three, uh, uh, verse 11 or so. And it's just interesting that I'm not going to go through the whole thing again, but I just want to look at a couple verses there uh, by way of remembrance because the name of this message is called The Myth of Christian Racism. 
the myth of Christian racism. Are you saying there's not some professing Christians that have been racist? What I'm saying is there's no true Christian that could be a true Christian and a follower of Christ and a racist at the same time. You can't, it's like saying, oh, that, that murderer is a Christian. Sorry, it's an oxymoron. You can't be a murderer and a Christian. And I'm going to show you from Scripture that to have hate in your heart toward people with, of a different skin type is the same as murder. So saying someone's a Christian racist is the same as saying he's a Christian murderer. If he's truly a murderer, he is not a Christian. And Christians need a slap in the face that would think that they could have a racist attitude because they're not even really Christians. They're professing Christians. Look at what verse two, chapter 2, verse 1 says. My brethren... Do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of what? Personal favoritism. In other words, your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ is inconsistent with having personal favoritism. And it's interesting because he specifically speaks here of judging people on the basis of what they look like. If a guy that has rich clothes and a rich ring or whatever, uh, and you sit him in the front, you put the guy with the poor clothes in the back, he says you become judges with evil motives. In verse 9, he says, but if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. God sees it as sin for you to judge people on the basis of the color of their skin or what they're wearing and treat people differently based on how they look. God says he does not look on the outward appearance. He looks on the heart. And that's how he wants us to be as Christians. And it's absolutely important that you understand that word, by the way. Favoritism in verse 1. Which is translated partiality in verse 2. is comes from the Greek word which I taught you last week is a prosopolemsia. And prosopolemsia, I'm not going to get into the technical aspects of that word which I did last week. But it's a compound word. Two words turned into one. And it means to judge someone based on their face based on what they look like. That's the Greek word, pretty heavy. And guess why God warns about it? Because a lot of people do it. And we have to be very, 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 very careful as Christians. That's of the flesh. We're supposed to walk in the spirit, amen, and not fulfill the desires of the flesh. And you know, for many, many years, professing Christians have taken Bible verses out of context to justify their prosopolemsia, their favoritism and their racism. They've tried to take verses out of the Bible. During the segregationist movement, Gillespie, a leading Calvinistic teacher in the 1950s, admitted he couldn't find any scriptures that taught that there should be segregation between the nations. But he said, look, the Bible does say that you shouldn't mix wool with cotton. Really? You're going to use that? And that's going to trump for God so loved the world? That's going to trump Paul saying that in Christ there's neither Jew nor Greek nor free man nor slave nor Scythian nor barbarian? That's going to trump that? That's going to trump the scriptures that talk where Peter had a hard time as a Jew going and witnessing to the, the Gentiles when Jesus said go to all the world? Go into all the world to preach the gospel to all nations. By the word, the word nations, there is ethnos, from which we get the word ethnicity. It's talking about all ethnic groups. Amen. The gospel is for all. The biblical worldview is not Darwinism. Darwinism, the idea of Darwinism, that, that whole worldview, it's very easy to be a racist. Why? Because we came from nothing, which is impossible, by the way. It's not science. Okay? Liberals are the true science deniers. <laughs> Deny a baby's a baby in the womb. Deny there's two genders when it's scientific. They deny a lot of stuff that's scientific. And guess what? Darwinism, basically, and Darwin taught that people came and evolved at different race speeds and the Europeans were the favored race. That was right when there was a whole thing going on in racism when he did that. And a lot of, his cousin was a father of eugenics, which was racial cleansing, which was picked up by Margaret Sanger, the founder of Planned Parenthood, who said we're targeting black neighborhoods. To this day, blacks are killed, babies, disproportionately to all the other races in America. And a lot of it has its basis. She was into eugenics. She was talking to Nazis during, just before the, the war, you know, World War II. I don't have time to get all that. That's not even my notes. That's, gonna be, that's another message, man. Because your worldview and how you look at things, if you don't believe, we believe that we're all creating God's image. Amen? We believe Eve's name means mother of all. Amen? 
Bible says we're all from one blood from one man. Acts chapter 17. Bible says God so loved the world. As I point out before, you know, we have a, a number of mixed couples in our fellowship. I praise God. To me, that's the most beautiful thing. One of the most beautiful things. Okay, somebody says, isn't the gospel more beautiful? It's an expression, but it's one of the most beautiful things because it's a result of the gospel too because God changes hearts. I love being able to look around our fellowship and see all the diversity, you know. It tears me up like right now. I just think about it. I just love it, man. There's, to me, there, it's hard to find anything more beautiful than seeing brothers and sisters of all different racial stripes united in Christ. Something so beautiful about that because you don't see that in the world. When you go to a prison, you know what you see? The Aryans, white power, you know, and then you see the, the Hispanics over here and the blacks over here. And you know where you don't see that? When you go to the chapel in the prison. Think about it. I thought about that earlier this week. I thought, what's a good illustration to show how Christianity, true Christianity, not talking about uh, mythological Christianity where you think you can hate people and be a Christian, which is a lie, and I thought, oh, the prisons. Because prisons, man, then, then things are accentuated. You know, racism really, you see it. But then you go to chapel, man, you see people of different racial backgrounds recognizing, because their worldview is different. You know, we're created in the image of God. We're bought by the same blood. We're going to spend eternity together with each other. Amen? What a beautiful, 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 powerful thing that is, you guys. This is how we know what love is, man. Look at the cross. Look what Jesus did for all of us, amen? So, uh, but people use scripture out of context. They don't have any scripture. For instance, you know what they'll use? Oh, God put a mark on Cain. And the mark of Cain is a black skin. Brigham Young went off on that whole thing. Oh, the blacks, that was the mark of Cain. and They bear the mark of Cain. Really? Why do you say that? Well, Mormons, he's the second prophet of Mormonism, Brigham Young University there in Utah, right? And the second prophet of Mormonism said, you know, I think he said something too, that the, the mark was, uh, or that blacks were known that God gave them a black skin and a flat nose so they could be distinguished from everybody else. And he built a whole mythology because they add to scripture. That's what cults do. And Brigham Young said, well, in the pre-existence, we all existed before we became human. And Cain was evil. He led a revolt against the spirit children of God that were following Abel. And the bad spirit children, followers of Cain, they're the ones that became black, the black people. And then they taught in Mormonism that the Nephites and Lamanites, the gospel came to the Americas, and the Nephites and Lamanites, you know, one was good and one were the, one were the Indians, the bad ones were the Indians. Just so happens that Brigham Young is a white guy. Coincidence? No, it's all about, it's such a lie. These are lies. So he taught that blacks have the mark of Cain. And he built a worldview around that so you'd view black people differently than reality. The biblical worldview, reality is that we're all from the same man. Blacks and whites and Hispanics and Asians could all have children together. Not all together, but husband and wife, you know. Let's get that, don't get misquoted, you know. People like to try to do that sometimes uh, to people. But it's interesting because we get blood transfusions from each other. We're all the same. So this, a lot of this is lies. You know what is one of my favorite passages on showing God's view of racism? Besides the most powerful, the, the gospel message is the most powerful thing against racism. God so loved the world, amen? But the most powerful passage to me that sticks out. And by the way, I've been preaching against racism. Wendy uh, and I, I love Wendy, and we have a great relationship. We've always been close to me and her family, and uh, we all fellowship and love each other. And she's been a big part, a pillar in this fellowship for years and years and years and years. But uh, during the Rodney King riots, which how long ago was that, Wendy? That was some time ago. Yeah, when uh, the KKK came here to Simi Valley, you know, we spoke out against it, and Wendy was given the ability to do a speech and we got together and just compared notes and shared some scriptures with her. Many, you know, different scriptures about how in Christ there's neither Jew nor Greek, and Gentile, Scythian, Barbarian, those kinds of scriptures. And Wendy boldly, you know, just shared. She was asked to share on behalf of the African-American community. But she showed that the answer and her whole emphasis was in Jesus. And uh, 
She, she texted me yesterday. We texted back and forth a couple times yesterday because we were thinking of doing something at the protest uh, yesterday. And I was able to go down their street witnessing. I might share that with you. But, uh, but it was a lot of marching and so forth. But uh, she said that she reminds people like her own family. Remember, we're followers of Christ first. We're Christians first, you know. And when our identity is in who made us, who loves us, who gave himself for us first, Seek first the kingdom of God, Jesus said, his righteousness, and then what will happen? Everything will be added to you. It'll all work out, guys, because then you recognize who you are. And by the way, Jesus is the bridge to heaven because there's this great chasm because of our sin that separates us from God. But Christ, his cross from him dying for our sins, he bridges the gap between heaven and this earth, amen? And when we come to Christ and we're on the straight and narrow road, we're walking on that bridge, right, the cross. But when we're walking on that bridge, guess who we're walking with? Red, brown, yellow, black, or white. They're all precious in sight. All our brothers and sisters, amen. We walk arm in arm because we're all brothers and sisters in Christ. And it's a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful thing, amen? Amen. It's absolutely beautiful. But you know what? God hates racism. And a lot of people do not realize that the Good Samaritan story is a message against racism. And a lot of people don't realize that when God gave a woman by the name of Miriam leprosy, it was a message against racism. Go to Numbers chapter 12. Ooh, this is heavy, man. Man, if you don't fear God and you're a racist, may God's words thunder into your heart and may he shake you with this text of scripture to let you see how he feels about a choice that you would make to hate other people based on their race or hate people at all. Chapter 12, verse 1, then Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses because of the Cushite woman whom he had married, for he had married a Cushite woman. The emphasis is it was because he married a Cushite woman. They, they complained against Moses. He's the leader leading them out of the bondage of Egypt into the promised land. And it says they spoke against Moses because he married a Cushite woman. Then it goes on to emphasize for he had married a Cushite woman. That's the whole point. Then they challenge his leadership after that. They get ticked off at him because he married a Cushite woman. Now, it's interesting because uh, the first word is a feminine singular verb which initiates the entire chapter in Miriam's name. And she's mentioned before Aaron because she's the one initiating this. Aaron's going along with it. Aaron tended to do that. Remember the golden calf? Oh, okay, let's do it. Okay, that sounds good. He's a follower. He should have been leading more. And, uh, but he's got caught up into it too and he's complaining against Moses. Well, a Cushite woman, what's going on there? In Daniel Hayes' book, uh, it's, called, it's uh, called From Every People and Nation, A Biblical Theology of Race. He writes of the Cushites that Cush, quote, the place of Cush, and it, some of your translations will have Ethiopian there. He points out that, that Cush, quote, is used regularly, regularly to refer to the area south of Egypt and above the cataracts of the Nile, where a black African civilization flourished for over 2,000 years. Thus, it is quite clear that Moses marries a black African woman. Obviously. By the way, when God gave, uh, put a mark on Cain, he put a mark on Cain, a token. We don't know what it looked like. Could have been a, a birthmark or something that looked like a birthmark or something that said something in some way that communicated. Obviously, it wasn't a black skin. We know that. Why? Because Moses married an African-American woman. I'm sorry, African-American woman. He married a uh, northern African woman, a Cushite. <laughs> I'm like, well, how did he do that? He went, into, he went ahead in time through a machine. You guys didn't read about that machine? Brigham Young talks about it. No, I'm just kidding. So he, he marries this uh, northern African woman. And uh, by the way, that term mark, mark, put a mark on Cain, used over 80 times in the Old Testament, that term mark. In the Hebrew, never, ever, not even once does it refer to skin, your, your race. Never. So it's just a lie, guys. I shouldn't even have to do apologetics on that kind of stuff, but just because not just Brigham Young, a number of white people, white racists in the name of Christ, claim to be Christians, also have used that argument. They did when they were fighting against the abolitionists in the 1800s. Now, it's interesting because we read in verse 2, and they said, Has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? Has he not spoken through us as well? And the Lord heard it. Now the man Moses was very humble, 
more than, listen, I love this. Now the man Moses was very humble, more than any man who was on the face of the earth. By the way, this book was written by Moses. Must have been hard to write that part. Okay, God, you're sure what to write, you know. <laughs> uh, verse four, suddenly the Lord said to Moses and Aaron and to Miriam, you three come out to the tent of meeting. This is where God would meet with them, tent of meeting. From there of the tabernacle. So the three of them came out. Then the Lord came down in a pillar of cloud and stood at the doorway of the tent and he called Aaron and Miriam. When they had both come forward, he said, hear now my words. If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, shall make myself known to him in a vision. I shall speak with him in a dream. Not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my household. With him I speak mouth to mouth, even openly and not in, a, and not in dark scenes. And behold, the, uh, and he beholds the form of the Lord. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant, against Moses? So the anger of the Lord burned against them and he departed. But when the cloud, because he'd come in the, in a, in the form of a cloud, uh, had withdrawn from over the tent, behold, Miriam was leprous. She was leprous. He gave her leprosy. And you know what? Look at the very next word. Her leprosy was what? White as snow. As Aaron turned toward Miriam, behold, she was leprous. Then he, Aaron looks and, and she's full of leprosy. I'm sorry, but this is really, really, really cool. You know, horrifying, sad. She'll be healed of it in a week. But, oh, oh, you have a hard time with darker skin? And you like lighter skin? And you're going to, uh, you're going to uh, condemn someone based on the color of their skin? Another human being just because their skin's not something that you grew up with and you're not comfortable with? Here, let me give you a little bit lighter skin. Since you like lighter skin, boom. Now she's white as snow. Like it? But guess what? She's also leprous diseased. And guess what? People are going to look at her differently. How do you like it? And I always say, I've said a number of times, that sometimes I think a cure for a racist is just put him in another skin. If you erase his memory, because he still has that same evil heart, he'd be racist against his old skin. That's, that's why I think racism is one of the stupidest sins the Bible talks about. It's idiotic when you think it through, guys. Come on. So she's being, now, okay, you want lighter skin? Boom, here you go, Miriam. And then Moses asked the Lord, Mo, you know, I'm sorry, not Moses, Aaron, like, you know, pray, you know, that he'll forgive us our, her, her sin. He calls it sin. It was sin. Racism, sin. And foolishness, he calls it as well in the text that follows. God says, have her sit outside the camp for seven days. God had her live with that for seven days. What if I told you there's evidence that the mark of Cain is really a white skin. And that white skin shows that people are particularly evil. What if I could show you evidence that you guys that are white, that you really have the mark of Cain and you're, you're evil in a very special way, in a very demonic way. And when I go to scriptures to show you that, and if I convinced you of that, how would you feel about yourself? And how would you feel that the rest of people that aren't white felt that way about you? The mark of Cain is not a white skin. But I just want you to think about how that would feel for just 20 seconds or whatever. You would feel pretty hated, huh? You'd feel like you were being demonized and demeaned because of the color of your skin. Well, guess what? That's how a lot of African Americans have felt for a long time. And even though racism was manifested in the form of slavery early in our country's history, you have to, you really, 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 really have to Try to put yourself in their skin because when black folks talk around the table of things that they're going through today, it doesn't happen in a vacuum. They have 200 plus years of history of great-great-grandparents and so forth that were enslaved or that were told that they had to sit in the back of the bus so they couldn't drink from certain drinking fountains, they couldn't go to certain restaurants. Hey, I was born in 63. I'm going to still live, I hope, 30, 40 years if the Lord tarries, you know. Not that old yet. I know I'm, you know, 56, so I'm middle-aged because I think I'm going to live to 112, you know. 
Not really, but hey. Uh, but you know what? What I'm saying is I remember, man, growing up and, and the segregation, and it was a big deal if a black guy kissed a white woman on television. It was a big deal. And I'm telling you right now, when you're on the other side of that, can you imagine the pain? And I just remember when the Rodney King thing happened and how people couldn't, they, they saw, and not even necessarily intending it, but I saw one pe- a bunch of black folks and their responses I was reading in regard to see him be kicked by a bunch of cops that are circling because he's trying to get up and they've, oh, he's resisting arrest. And then black folks seen the same thing, saying he's getting abused, they're all kicking him. They could restrain him. I thought, wow, a lot of white folks are having a hard time seeing how black folks see and they don't see things through the lenses of black folks because they haven't walked in their skin and been in their history. And the, the very least we could do is try to be sympathetic if you can't be empathetic and try to put yourself there. Amen? And I think we would have a lot, I think because we just, we go like this. And one thing the prodigal son teaching teaches me is we can't just go on the other side of the road and say, I'll let somebody else deal with it. That's not the what Jesus, he said, do what he did. The, the, the good Samaritan went and helped the guy. The priest, the religious guy, the other religious guy, both passed him by. Jesus is letting us know, guess what? Do something about these things. Be part of the answer. And the answer isn't falling into some Antifa agenda, okay? Or falling into some agenda. Like, I'm sorry, you know what? What if I said, hey, you know what? Praise God, Louis Farrakhan speaking about racism. Let's follow Louis Farrakhan. Well, he speaks against racism, but guess what else he does? He says, if you're white with blue eyes, that would be me. You're creating a laboratory by demons. That's, that's racism too. If you're white, you're just made in some laboratory. Okay? And yeah, I'm all for saying, I agree. The, the slogan, Black Lives Matter, they do. I agree with the slogan, Black Babies Lives Matter in the womb too. They're being butchered by the millions. And white babies matter too. Amen? But I, don't, but I watch out for the and Hispanic babies that are being butchered in the womb too. But we want to pick and choose who we're going to stand up for. What about the most innocent that are being butchered, that have been targeted by racists like Margaret Sanger, Planned Parenthood, which had a legacy of racism prior to her? And by the way, you want to hurt black people? Just get on the whole Black Lives Matter, and I've been on their website, defund the police. Just defund the police and see what happens to minority neighborhoods. That is a race. That would be a racist policy. You take, the, you take. Okay, let's not protect the chickens and the chicken coop from the fox because maybe the fox will be nice if we just take the barrier away. No, people aren't going to change the heart. We have a heart problem as human beings. All of us do. Okay, and Black Lives Matter also calls for the end of the nuclear family, the traditional family, because it's founded by a couple gals that are lesbians. I think one is. Correct me if I'm wrong, uh, two of them, but two of them are uh, lesbians. One of them is a, a witch, you know, and they don't share a Christian worldview. They don't share the worldview that Martin Luther King had. Martin Luther King was all about, he shared often the gospel and love, the love of Christ that were made in the image of God. That was a lot of his message. But I, I want to make sure I don't get behind a movement that says, hey, let's end the, end the, end the family. Now, Lester Crowley taught that family is public enemy number one. Satan hates the family. Okay? So you got to watch who you get behind. We need to stay with Jesus, amen? We want to stay Christ-focused. And we have to speak the truth. And you know what? Anybody who really loves other people and is against racism will resonate with everything I'm saying right now. Because you don't want to be harnessed by political operatives that have another agenda. By the way, what if I say, hey, let's stand against racism, but let's end Israel as a nation. Let's stop the Jews and, and cease, cause them to cease existing as a nation. Guess what? George Soros, who according to the Washington Times has given millions of dollars. George Soros has given millions of dollars to Black Lives Matter. And George Soros has funded many organizations to destroy or to bring an end to Israel's existence as a state. And guess what happened in 2016? Black Lives Matter's platform became Israel is an apartheid state. They're, gu- they're guilty of genocide. Gen- I've been to Israel a number of times. We visit as Christians, right? And they have a Neset, which is like our Senate. And guess what? It's democracy and there's Arabs, Muslims in the Neset. Okay? Not ethnic cleansing going on there. 
And you empty a word of its meaning when you change it to try to fit your agenda. By the way, the term genocide, you know where that came from? Came from the Jews being almost wiped out as a race by the Nazis during World War II. That's when that word was coined. And then you're going to turn around and want to wipe them out as a nation or make them not exist anymore as part of your agenda? So if when you join a group, you say, oh, I, this group is great because people are hijacking what God wants to do in people's hearts and turning it toward more hate just in another direction. And it begets more and more hate. And I'm sorry, there's something wrong when a bunch of white boys are screaming Black Lives Matter and destroying a black person's business while they're doing it. That's just messed up. And by the way, it's a bunch of white boys, for the most part, that are leading Antifa. Okay? And they're creating more racism through doing it. And that's fascism, when you're trying to dictate by force your own will. The weapons of our warfare as, as Christians are not carnal, or they're not physical, but they're mighty through God. Spiritual, they're pulling down strongholds. 2 Corinthians 10, 4 and 5, amen. So it's just interesting what we, when we look at here. So guess what? If you're a racist and you have a hard time, you, you hate other races, you may not have physical leprosy, but you have an eternal leprosy. Your heart is diseased. You have to get before God and say, God, have mercy on me. I'm a sinner. Please change my heart and allow the love of God to change you. See, the Bible talks about the fruit of the Spirit. When you become a Christian, the fruit of the Spirit, the first thing that's mentioned is love. Amen? Paul says in Galatians chapter, I'm sorry, Romans chapter 5, that the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. Amen? I know when I became a Christian, my life just totally changed. All of a sudden, I just loved everybody, you know? wasn't perfect, but all of a sudden, wow, I had love for people, everybody. And I found out that it was quite easy to be colorblind. I grew up in a home where I heard some racist things, you know, my, by my dad when I was young. And our whole family, all five of us kids, would argue with him, you know. We had friends of different racial stripes. And he wasn't an angry racist unless it came to the Jews. He, sometimes he'd get angry. He became a Christian bef before he died, you know. Uh, he died last year, and uh, his heart changed a lot. His heart changed even before he became a Christian a little bit because we'd bring, you know, uh, Wendy and, and uh, Brenda and uh, a lot of Tony Maddox, a lot of our African-American members of this fellowship got to know him, and he, he fell in love with them, you know. And, and he never had a, like an anger toward other races except for the Jews. He'd get angry. And I think that was a spiritual, kind of a demonic thing before he was saved because he, he, there's no rhyme or reason to it. And then I say, Dad, you know, you hating on Jews is biblical because it says that they'd have no place to lay their foot. And they'd be hated just like Christians would be hated. And eventually, I, he came to the point where he'd ask about, in fact, uh, Brenda, bless your heart, sister, you know. Our, one of my dear African-American sisters, and I never mean, because we're having rest on race, I don't even talk like that, right? We don't see each other like that. But she'd go over all the time, visit my dad and my mom. All the time, and just show him the love of Christ. Amen, sister? That was a beautiful, beautiful thing. And then if he didn't see Brenda for a while, he'd ask my mom, my mom would tell me, he's saying, I haven't seen Brenda and Dave for a while. When are they coming by? God changed his heart after he started opening his heart to Jesus, guys. That's what the Lord does. It's the power of, power of God's grace. It's a powerful, powerful thing. And the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts. So when we become Christians, we realize that God loves us. Wow. We're convicted of our sin, of our ugliness before God, because guess what? We all have sinful problems, things messed up in our heart. And some manifest through sexual sin. Some manifest through uh, theft, hatred, whatever. Racism. But you come to Christ, he changes that. And you experience the love of God in your heart. And then... Guess what? That love that you've received and transforms you is shed abroad in your heart toward others. Not just you experience first, but then you're transformed by the grace of God into a new creation. It says, behold, if anyone be in Christ is a new creature, old things have passed away, all things have become new. Now you're a new creation and now you love other people. And the more you love the Lord and his word, the more you begin to hate sin and the more you begin to share that love with other people. Doesn't matter what race they are. And by the way, as Christians, I hate the term even races. It's colloquial, so we use it because it's the language everybody uses that we know. But really, biblically, there's one race. We're all descendants of Adam. The human race, amen. There's different tribes and ethnic groups, ethnos within the one race. Now, it's interesting because when you really look at racism and 
you look at what's going on uh, in Scripture with, with racism. God is totally against racism. Now, you do see some people say, well, the Bible talks about slavery, and it regulates slavery. Well, keep in mind, the Bible was written in a time when the first century, when the New Testament was written, according to a lot of historians, over half the population were slaves. You could be a doctor, you could be a statesman, you could be a philosopher, you could be a, a poet, you could be a, a lawyer, a politician, and be a slave. It's very, a lot of people joined, just said, hey, I want to be your servant, and I'll be taken care of. And it made it easy for a lot of people because, to, to, because to, you know, easier than trying to find a job maybe somewhere, becoming a servant. So a lot of people were slaves in that way. People were slaves as indentured servants in the Bible. So they owed X amount of dollars. You go to debtor's prison because you owed somebody so much money in, in biblical times, or you could become an indentured servant, say, hey, I'll pay it off. I'll become a servant until it's paid off. Let's say you had 15 years to pay off. Well, guess what? God had laws to regulate. If, 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 a, if a master hurt his servant and he has a permanent injury, he's free for life. That wasn't everywhere else. <laughs> if uh, if someone, so you could pay to set a servant, a slave free, you could, oh, guess what? That guy owes you 15 years. Every seventh year, guess what? Anyone who's a slave is set free in Israel. You don't see that everywhere else. Seventh year, man. And the seventh year, the servant could say, hey, I love serving here. I want to serve here the rest of my life. Then he'd go to a doorpost and they'd, you know, stick his ear against, boom, and put it all in his ear. He'd have an earring. He'd, he'd say, I'm a servant for life. That was his choice. If you owed 15 or 20 or 25 years of servitude, and the year of Jubilee came up, which is not just every seven years, that's every 49, but let's say, hey, you're, you're six years away from your freedom, but you owe this guy 20 years, but guess what? The year of Jubilee happens to come up the very next year for you, you're set free after a year. Probably the real smart businessmen would like, hey, I'm going to go to this guy all this money and become a slave. Hopefully he doesn't realize the year of Jubilee is next year. I don't know how they thought, you know. But it's just kind of interesting when you think about it because... You have some, what my point is, in, in biblical times, also nations would fight against each other. And it was merciful if you were allowed to become a servant rather than be killed and taken care of by those who were ruling. They're, they're not going to let you go and, and, and get another insurrection later. You're going to be killed or you become a servant. So a lot of things happen that way. What am I saying? When you read some atheist, some troll online, you're saying, well, there's atheists or there's uh, you know, slavery in biblical times. Of course there was. There's almost 30 million slaves today, too. It was just rampant then. And guess what the Lord is doing? He's trying to show mercy in the midst of it. He's regulated it so these guys aren't killed and put to death and so they can be set free at a certain point. Okay? And but at the same time, so people could pay off their debts and so forth because of the economic system of time. It was economic. It wasn't based on race. And it wasn't based on kidnapping. You were not allowed to go to another country or another people group or another home and kidnap someone you couldn't go from Israel to Africa and capture a bunch of people and bring them back as your slaves. And it couldn't be based on race either. What was going on through the Atlantic trade slate is far different than what was going on in Israel. Now, it's interesting. In fact, listen to what the scriptures say. Listen to what the word of God says. It says, because there's a penalty in the Mosaic law in the Old Testament, if you enslave someone through kidnapping. Guess how severe the penalty was? Exodus chapter 21, verse 16. Anyone who kidnaps another and either sells him as a slave or still has him as a slave, when he is caught, must be put to death. If you kidnap someone and say, hey, I'm going to sell you into slavery, man. I'm going to make some money off you. I'm going to go to West Africa and bring you to, the, to Israel and, and sell you, man. Or I'm going to keep you. They take you if you did that, and they execute you. You don't hear the atheists bring those scriptures up. In fact, it's interesting in First Timothy chapter one, verses eight through ten in the New Testament. You know who's on the list with perverts and adulterers and and murderers? Slave traders. Read it. They're on the list of those who are, in, are those who are godless men, ungodly and sinful men, under break God's law, in huge trouble with God. Would that the earliest slave traders in the United States would have paid heed to these passages. 
So, am I going too fast or are we okay? Because I have a half hour less than I'm used to having because we've broken in two services. So I'm like, Lord, get me through this. Uh, and you know, we come to learn, right? They don't come give you a verse or two, tell you a couple stories. Oh, have a nice day. And just no challenge for your life's change. You come here, you're going to be challenged to, change, to expand your understanding of what God's word says, your worldview, and to love one another and to be what God's called us to be. Amen. And hopefully that's why you're here because you love Jesus. And, and it's beautiful. Uh, a sister in the Lord, Matina, just cut my hair, you know, and uh, a week ago or whatever, and she's like, you know, a lot of churches she said, she goes, I've never found, you know, anything like Blessed Hope. She goes, I've been to churches, but it's hard to get to know people, and it, and, but everybody knows each other, and everybody loves each other, and we're all friends, and that's beautiful. And I'm like, yeah, you know, I take it for granted, you know. I went and spoke at a big church and was in, uh, not too far from here, actually, and huge church, and I spoke for a while, and afterwards, I was going to fellowship with whoever was there. It was a huge church, and 10 minutes after the service, everyone was gone. There's like 20 people that stayed, all blessed hope people, you know, for the next hour, you know, 25 maybe, and I was like, wow, that's a beautiful thing, and that's because and the more you press into Jesus, the closer you get to him, the more you're in his word, the more you're filled with his love, the more you just want to love on people and Spend time with people, encourage each other, and do his work. Amen? So I want to encourage you in that. And by the way, the Apostle Paul in the New Testament, he wrote a book called Philemon. We call it Philemon. And he tells Philemon to forgive Onesimus, who was a slave that ran away and stole some stuff. He'd say, oh, you should. No, he told Philemon that you should forgive him. And he says, no longer treat him as a bondservant. Don't treat him like a slave but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother. Treat him as your beloved brother. And so God put within the seeds of his word teachings about loving your neighbor as yourself. Amen? And if you have a servant, treat him not like a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, treat him as your brother. And if, I, if my brother is my slave and I'm loving him as I love myself, guess what? He's not, the, he's not a slave the next day. I'm letting him off because he's my brother. And I'm loving him as I love myself. And God put the seeds in there knowing that he would undo world slavery through the gospel. You know, it was almost like a form of godly subterfuge. Boom, the seeds are there. In fact, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7.21 in the New Testament, as, uh, are you a slave? Don't let that worry you. But if you get a chance to be free, take it. Are you a slave? Don't let that worry you. But if you get a chance, Paul says, to take it. Take it. To be free, take it. That's New Testament, guys. Well, guess what? The early church, early on, Ignatius, you know, he talked about being free through the gospel because keep in mind, half the Roman Empire or so are enslaved, right? Clement of Rome. Now there's Clement of Alexandria. I love to read the early church fathers and I love to quote them when the quotes are fitting. I quote them more than I do any other time in church history other than the first century apostles and prophets. But Clement of Rome, he wrote around 90 AD before John wrote the book of Revelation. He's mentioned by Paul, Clement of Rome, in his epistles, I think twice. Listen to what he writes about slavery. He writes and he states, uh, I think this is powerful. We know many, many among ourselves, many of us, many of the Christians, he says, many among ourselves who have given themselves up to slavery they gave themselves up to bonds, to slavery. Why? In order that they might ransom others. Wow. So many Christians said, I'm going to become a slave so I can set other slaves free. So obviously if they had slaves, many of them, right, would set them free. If they're going to go into slavery themselves to set people free. And he says, many too have surrendered themselves to slavery that with the price which they receive for themselves, they might provide food for others. Wow. Can you understand how the gospel would bring a transformation in people's attitudes towards slavery and eventually bring an, a, an end to the Atlantic slave trade, the most wicked system of slavery and largest ever devised? Quite amazing. Now, just as Darwinism and eugenics, and the favored races, and all those lies, atheistic lies, promoted the idea of treating people as less than. 
the gospel set people free unless it got twisted. Unless you tried to find something in the Bible to justify your carnal, fleshly, evil desires to have people rule under you and treat them as less than you and as dirt, as your little slaves. And sadly, uh, one of the teachings that came around that caused people to look at themselves as favored above everybody else was the Calvinism of John Calvin, starting with Augustine a, a thousand years earlier. But John Calvin taught that certain people were predestined before we were created. Certain people were predestined without fail, unilaterally, to eternal damnation without a choice to actually respond to God's grace and be saved where God didn't truly will their salvation but decreed that they'd be passed by and doomed in hell forever, the greater amount of humanity. And that there were few, elect few that God loved and that Jesus died for because Jesus didn't die for these other people because they were, it was God's design that they would perish forever. Even John Calvin, who taught this, called it a horrible decree. He admits it was horrible. And they called it the secret decree. So secret, you can't find it anywhere in the Bible, by the way. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes him should not perish. The Bible says Jesus tasted death for everyone, Hebrews chapter 2. He's a propitiation not only for our sins, the elect, but the sins of the whole world, 1 John 2, 2. Amen. He wills that all would be saved and come to knowledge of the truth, 1 Timothy 2, 4. Okay. He's no pleasure in death of the wicked, chapter 18, verse 33 of Ezekiel. He doesn't will that any would perish, but that all would come to repentance, 2 Peter 3, 9. Amen. On and on and on and on throughout the scripture, the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, Titus chapter 2, verse 11. And by the way, I love these verses because they show the love of God and they destroy racism. And they destroy a distorted picture that people would have of God to put them in a favored status. But when William Carey, who is called the father of modern missions, arose as a young man with a bunch of Baptist leaders and said, let's take the gospel in the foreign lands, people of other races, a Calvinist stood up and said, young man, sit down. You are an enthusiast. When God pleases to convert the heathen, he'll do it without consulting you or me. In other words, he wants to start a mission. Missions to foreign lands. By the way, call the father and mother missions. There's been all kinds of missionaries that gave their lives prior to William Carey, but his heart was in the right place, and he did a lot of good. But guess what? A lot of the Calvinists were like, hey, God's predestined us Europeans. And yeah, if he has other people, let him deal with them. No, the reason those guys may not be converted is because men like this gentleman are sitting on the rear end not obeying the gospel, which says in Jesus' command, his commission to go into all the world, preach the gospel to all nations, and make disciples of all, all nations, amen? That's why people don't get saved in a lot of reasons, because Christians are on the rear end thinking, I'm special. In the holy huddle behind the stained glass window saying, I'm predestined, and they become what's called the frozen chosen. The Bible says God is not partial. Romans 2.11, there's no partiality with God. Hebrews, I'm sorry, Acts chapter 10, after Peter, God said to go to Cornelius, and Peter wasn't going to go at first, and God gave a vision, showed him the, 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 the meat, the unclean meat that was clean now in the sheet, remember that? Kill and eat, kill and eat. Finally, Peter gets it. He said, don't call unclean what I call clean, he said, and then he goes to, then he goes to Cornelius, and then at the end of that, he sees Cornelius get saved, these Gentiles, who they wouldn't even eat with, the foreigners, like the Samaritans. And then Peter says, I learned that God does not play favorites. But everybody who fears him is accepted by him. Everyone. Brothers and sisters, let the love of God and the word of God and the truth of God permeate your hearts and minds. And why do you think I preach? Are these a lot of new scriptures to you? No. Why? Because I preach them all the time. And every time I'm preaching them, I'm preaching against racism. I preach against racism all the time. Because I'm constantly emphasizing God's love for everyone. And when you're wrapped up in teaching God's love for everyone, you don't see people as favored above other people based on their color of their skin or where they're from or how they dress. Now, guess what? Leading Calvinist, the top, you know who the most famous Calvinist is? John Calvin, right? But he, would, he didn't subscribe to all the Calvinism, which is kind of interesting. Uh, but you have the most popular Calvinistic theologian in the Americas is Jonathan Edwards, by far. They call him America's greatest theologian. If you're a Calvinist, I guess that might be true. If you think that those teachings are true, I don't. He denied true free will. 
you know, and, and uh, ultimately destroyed human responsibility because it said God makes you do everything, but you kind of want to do what he makes you do, which was a contradiction. If you're not, you're not really choosing anything other than what he predetermined you at the end of it all, bottom of it all still. But uh, also the most popular and famous Calvinistic, and this is the problem of racism in the church, part of it. Uh, evangelist was George Whitfield, very effective evangelist, but he was a racist, okay? And so was Dabney. I, if you read theological books, which I do, you see Dabney's name all over the place. Dabney was a Confederate soldier. He was associated with Stonewall Jackson, and he left the Civil War early, which was over race. A big part of it was race. And uh, when you read the Cornerstone speech, you see that was a part of it, which we'll get into another time. But it's interesting that Dabney got out early, and even after the war, after they lost the war, Dabney writes a book, you know, The Defense of Virginia through her, uh, A Defense of Virginia and Through Her of the South. And he writes this book, and he believed that you're predestined and that Europeans were providentially predestined by God because they were favored salvifically. And he, listen to what he writes. Was it nothing that the black race, this is, was it nothing that the black race morally inferior, that's what he calls them, calls black people morally inferior, should be brought into close relations to a nobler race? The white race are the nobler race. The black race is morally inferior. This guy, this is wicked, you guys. And this was what was being taught in the name of Christ. We have to own it. These were false doctrines. Wow, morally inferior? Dabney said that it's good that blacks have white masters because otherwise, without us white masters, they, they lend themselves to, they tend toward lying, theft, drunkenness, laziness, and waste. By the way, he had a number of uh, black slaves, okay, and uh, promoted slavery. Now, it's interesting because when I read things like that, you also see his statement makes it sound as though the Africans need the whites to be able, and they need to be enslaved by the whites to really get the gospel. That's demonic, I'm sorry. It's like kidnapping someone or buying someone who's been kidnapped, saying it's good that I've kidnapped you and I'm forcing you to do things because otherwise you wouldn't ever come to the gospel. That's the way of the gospel. By the way, Dabney, who must have known better, he, was, he had a sharp mind, but used it in a wrong way. He was a professor. He was a, a teacher of theology, justifying racism. Dabney, interestingly enough, uh, when he justified this and said that they were of the noble race and so forth, and he acted like Africans had never heard the gospel and never could hear the gospel. What's wrong with that? Over a well over a thousand years before Dabney, guess what? There were Africans being converted to Christ and were leading in the church. Northern Africans like Irenaeus. In fact, Athanasius was called the black dwarf because he was a short, fiery black guy. He's called the black dwarf. And he's one of the most radical church fathers you read about in early church history. He stood against the Arians and Arianism. And the Arians taught that Jesus wasn't God. And he fought doctrinally against a lot of false doctrines. In fact, he was chased by different emperors and four or five times had to leave his homeland. They were hunting him like a dog and he'd come back and preach the gospel. Super, super a genius, man. A brilliant guy in the scriptures, man. Just recall scripture, boom, boom, boom. Such a force. And guess what? That was long before, well over a thousand years before Dabney even existed. And he's acting like, and he needed, did, did Athanasius get enslaved first to learn from some white master how to become a Christian? No. These are just a bunch of lies, you guys. And it's so serious. And Jonathan Edwards had a number of slaves. Uh, Venus was his first one. A guy named Lee was another one that he had. Titus, Joseph. And Jonathan Edwards is considered the greatest of all American theologians by Calvinists. Oh, what about George Whitfield? George Whitfield was, a, was, a, was mentored by John Wesley. The two, nobody, nobody debates whether these are not the two greatest evangelists of the 18th century. They were like the Billy Grahams of their time. But guess what? John Wesley rejected predestination 
the view of predestination that said you didn't have a chance at your salvation, you were either chosen or not. Whitfield took up that doctrine and they oppose each other. They still lo- tried to love each other and they still, uh, Whitfield would win people to Christ and send them to Wesley because Whitfield didn't have organization skills. You don't have a church that's, you know, you have Wesleyan churches, you have Methodist churches, you have Nazarene churches, all from Methodism because John Wesley was very methodical, evangelical, but he'd, he'd bring people to Christ and the fruit would remain. With Whitfield, you didn't see a lot after that with him. Certainly people did remain to a degree, but guess what? He compromised his mission by enslaving people. He had 640 acres there in Georgia, which was named after King George II, a colony because it was not yet 1976. And, he, and guess what? Wesley opposed him on that because George Whitfield felt the same way. He said, oh, we can tutor them in Christ. We can bring them to Jesus. And then you know what else Whitfield said? He goes, we're too weak as white people because we're not used to the hot climate in Georgia. So we need people, black, uh, African, Amer- black Africans that we bring over, and we need to have them work the hot climate. And guess what? They worked the hot climate, man, as slaves. But Wesley opposed him on that. In fact, Wesley wrote a track. Uh, uh, and George Whitfield literally says this, I should think myself highly favored if I could purchase a good number of them in order to make their lives comfortable and lay a foundation for breeding up their posterity in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. In other words, yeah, I want to buy a bunch of slaves. Then they can teach them about Jesus. What a farce, you know? He talked about the hot climate, you know, and so forth. But you know what, Wesley? Wesley responded. Wesley responded. Wesley wrote, white men, even Englishmen, I love this, are well able to labor in hot climates. Provided they are temperate both in meat and drink, and that they inure themselves uh, so by degrees to speak more uh, than I know by experience. You know what? He's saying, as long as white people, they're not used to the hot climate, they slowly get into it. They don't get drunk. They're not doing a whole bunch of overeating and all that stuff, and they get used to it slowly. He says, I know this by experience. It appears from the thermometer that the summer heat in Georgia is frequently equal to that of Barbados. And he says there in Barbados that he worked, they fell a bunch of trees, they nurtured the land when he was there on all the spare time that they had. They did great. There was a German family and 40 different people, Germans there, that were hired as well. And they did it and they all worked the land and things worked out great. So he says, you know, he says, wealth is not necessary for the glory of any nation. Because he goes on to say, if you think you need slaves to work the land, then don't work the land, leave the land. Better not have the land. Another place he says, you need to uh, bring slaves to work the islands. He goes, better let those islands sink in the sea and you not be in those islands if you got, can't work them yourselves. Same thing, that's another thing. He wrote a lot of things against slavery and Whitfield that disagreed with him. Whitfield was weak though, physically. He had physical problems. John Wesley was a stud, man, I'm sorry. He's just like gnarly, till dies at 88 years old, still preaching the gospel the day he dies. 200,000 miles on horseback preaching the gospel. Okay, he was older than Whitfield, yet he lived much longer. And so maybe their constitutions were different, but if you're a weaker person, you feel like you can't work the land, then don't own the land. Well, Wesley said, I deny that you're, you're gaining one shilling of it is necessary, e- either to your present or eternal happiness. But you say these slaves are necessary for the cultivation of our islands in the West Indies, and the white men are not able to labor in the hot climates. I answer, it were better that all those islands should remain uncultivated forever. Yea, it would be more desirable that they were altogether sunk into the depth of the sea that they, than that they should be cultivated at so high a price at the violation of justice, mercy, and truth. I love Wesley, man. You know what I love about Wesley, too? Is Wesley, I mean, he was a celebrity-type preacher, not because he was doing things to be a celebrity. He was just bringing so many people to Christ. And guess what? He's 88 years old. He's about ready to die. And he writes a letter to a young man who had just become a Christian who was a heathen, and his name was William Wilberforce. And he was used more than any other politician to bring an end to the Atlantic slave trade. But guess who he was inspired by? John Wesley. And six days before Wesley died, at the age of 88 years old, this is powerful, man. At the age of 88 years old, six days before he dies, man, this guy's amazing. He writes a letter to Wilberforce saying, don't give up. In fact, we have the letter On February 24th, 1971, he writes to Wilberforce, short letter, Dear Sir, unless divine power has raised you up to be as an Athanasius against the world, I see not how you can go through your glorious enterprise in opposing uh, this villainy of slavery he's talking about 
which is a scandal of religion, all the religion of England and of the human nature. Unless God has raised you up in this very thing, you will not be worn out by the opposition of men and devils. In other words, keep going, man. It's demonic, this whole slavery thing. And you, you'll be, don't be worn out. God, God will use you. And this guy's in his late 20s. And he's getting this from Wesley. And Wesley's like so well known, man. He's transformed the continent, you know, and, 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 and been to the Americas. And he writes, but if God be for you, who can be against you, writes Wesley? Are all of them stronger than God? Oh, then he says, oh, be not weary in well-doing. Think about that. This guy's 88 years old, ready to die. Don't be weary in well-doing. Don't quit. I mean, this blows me away, man. May we in our older age, amen, not stop. Go on, he says, in the name of God and in the power of his might, till even America, sla- American slavery, is, is what he says, till even American slavery, the vilest that has ever saw the sun, shall vanish away before it. Wow. Reading this morning a track, he said, of a poor African. This is an African who was kidnapped and brought to England and got his freedom and became a Christian. And Wesley's talking about this man where he read his track. I was particularly struck by the circumstance that a man who has a black skin being wronged or outraged by a white man can have no redress, it being a law in all our colonies that the oath, America was a colony at this time, of England, that an oath of a black man against a white man goes for nothing what villainy is this, Wesley writes to him, that he who has guided you from youth up may continue to strengthen you in this and in all things is the prayer of dear sir, your affectionate servant, John Wesley. is that amazing? So he dies six years later, or six days later, who knows when he got that letter and Wesley, it's all in the news that Wesley died and he said, don't give up. This guy that just dies, 88. And then he used that as fuel to carry on, and he became the main force within England to bring an end to the Atlantic free, so-called you know, trade industry, and then it eventually swept the United States by the Christian abolitionists who led the way here in our country. Don't let anybody tell you it has to be this group that runs things, this group that does things. You stand with Jesus and you don't veer because it's the gospel of Jesus Christ and him changing hearts like the hearts of Wesley, the heart of Wilberforce. Oh, there's wrong doctrines that'll get in the way of your heart, like Calvinism. And I'm not saying all Calvinists are, would be racist and slaveholders. I'm sure many of them oppose it as well. But your doctrine can lead to you to see less of the love of God than you ought to see. And the scriptures are clear. The Bible is really clear. God's word is clear. Sixth commandment, thou shalt not commit murder. But you know what the scriptures say? Jesus in Matthew chapter 5, verse 21 and following, he says, you've heard that if you commit murder, you'll be liable to court. But he says, I'm, but, if, but if you hate your brother in your heart, you're liable to court. That's like murder. 1 John 3, 15 says this, everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. If you hate your brother because of their skin color, you're a murderer and you don't have eternal life. That's why I said, that I told this message, the myth of Christian racism. You cannot be a racist and have murder in your heart toward people that are of different color and be a Christian at the same time. What you need to do is fall on your face before God. 1 John 4, 20 says, if someone says, I love God, yet they hate their brother, he says, how can you love your brother or, or hate your brother who you do see if you cannot, and then love God who you can't see? It's inconsistent with true Christianity. And I just think it's amazing because when I was, I went to the protest yesterday and I went to witness and share the gospel and I came up to a, uh, a black couple that were with their child and, and cause it's hard, people weren't like stationary. So I'm like, how do I witness? So I pulled up my truck on Sequoia as people were walking. I pulled up, hit my brakes. And the guy's like, whoa, I go, hey, I asked him out for lunch. I said, hey, can I buy you guys lunch? I'd love to buy you lunch. It's getting later in the day. I'm thinking they're probably hungry and it might be a good way to show the love of Christ, which is my heart and prayer. And, and uh, he's like, oh, well, we're good. You know, he's got the signs and stuff. I go, hey. I go, I just want to ask you guys some questions. Are you a reporter? I go, no, I'm a Christian, but I believe there's some really good answers to racism. I began to talk to him about the prodigal son, not the prodigal son, the good Samaritan. I started off with saying, hey, man, I think the world would be really, really boring if it was just vanilla ice cream. I like to do that. And then he goes, yeah, it's a lot better when you put some chocolate on top. Like, and we just laughed, you know, and it kind of broke the ice. It was really cool. And then we began to just, I just began to share the real answer to racism. And Jesus 
I told him about these rabbi stories. This rabbi is good. This rabbi is good that the Jews had among themselves. But Jesus wanted them to get to understand their neighbor just wasn't other Jews. Like the Old Testament says, not just the Jew, it's the foreigner that comes in your land. You're supposed to love him like you love yourself too. Because you were foreigners in Egypt, he says. And you know what? I said, look, the Samaritan, when Jesus gave the good Samaritan story, those were people that a lot of the Jews hated. And Jesus made him the hero of the story. And he's breaking the stereotype of racism. It's powerful. It's profound. And he's saying, go beyond your own nation and love people that are far away. And guess what? When people are in the ditch and they don't look like you, you still go the extra mile. You help them. It's these teachings, brothers and sisters, that transform the heart. Because guess what? The good Samaritan, he's a picture of Jesus Christ. That's what Jesus did for you and me. We were dead on the side of the road without hope in this world. Amen? Amen. He left his position in heaven. He became a man. Amen? He didn't put us on a beast. He put us on his back. Amen? He bore our sins on the cross, and he paid not for us to get an in. He paid the price to get us into heaven. Amen? That's the gospel. And we show that same love to everybody else, and we show a picture of Jesus in ourselves. We're to be living epistles read of men. Amen? Where people are supposed to see your life, they're supposed to see my life, and they're supposed to see Jesus. Because he is the only answer. The only answer is the Lord Jesus Christ to this problem. And not everybody's going to come to this world because most people are going to hate on Jesus. Amen. But one day, all of us who love Christ are be united, red, brown, yellow, black, or white. Revelation 7, before God's throne, it says, all the different tribes and peoples of the world. How beautiful will that be? Amen. We have the answer. The answer is Jesus. If you're a Christian, you need to hate racism and stand against it. And yes, you too need to protest against it by the way you live your life and the way you lift up the name of Jesus and the way you reach out and love to people of other races. Amen? In the name of Jesus.